This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras and lenses, but also anything you need for video, lighting, post-processing accessories, and more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com newsletter. The position of a camera can be a powerful thing. Whether it's a high-end mirrorless or a smartphone, the camera has the potential of being a tool for storytelling, social justice, or personal creativity. Its power doesn't reside with its cost or its feature set, but how the photographer chooses to use it. Leila Amatula Bahrain uses it to serve her work as a documentary photographer, examining issues of race, religion, and various facets of the black experience, both in the U.S. and Africa. Layla recognizes and respects the power and the legacy of photography, which led her to serve as the co-author of Women Photographers of the African Diaspora, the first anthology in nearly 30 years that highlights photography produced by women of African descent. Along with photographers Andre Wagner, Valeria Rocha, and James Anthony, Valerie was also part of the Adobe-sponsored collaborative project, Life Reflected. We welcome the chance to share her voice and her vision with you this week. This is Ibarion X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you and to have a chance to talk about you and, and, and your work. Um, you just... Mentioned that uh, you got back from Minneapolis. So, were you on assignment? Was this something that you were doing self-assigned? Well, yes, I was on assignment. In between the work I was doing on my assignment, I was taking some time to get to know the residents of the city, getting to know the city itself. You know, just really following my curiosities about where I was, which I, is important to me as a storyteller. Was that because you're expanding beyond the sort of the, the immediate narrative of the, the trial uh, from a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I, I think it was very important. You know, the, the coverage of the trial was obviously very important. This trial was one of the most important trials in, you know, I would say the past, <laughs> what, 25 years, uh, especially with regards to social justice, race relations, police relations, and, um, you know, all of these things and issues that greatly affect um, Black people, African Americans. So, I, you know, there's always a greater story outside of the immediate coverage. You know, of course, we want to know 
what's happening day to day with the trial, with the prosecution and defense, you know, those things are important. But then this trial lives within a context of a person, George Floyd, of a city, Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities. There's a history there. I was interested in that. I was interested in learning as much as I could while I was there in that short amount of time so that when I'm delivering my work, I can have an uh, extra set of information to share, you know, with my editors. And I was also on assignment um, for a story on on environmental justice too, which I which I was very appreciative of. And it was this is some, this is a topic that I uh, don't cover as much, so I was really excited to delve into new territory. Um, it was an investigative piece. It should be coming out soon. So I was really excited about that. It felt like it really fortified my experience when I was in Minneapolis. That's that's good to hear. When the Rodney King trial and happened and the, the resulting uprising in Los Angeles happened, one of the things that I was often disheartened about was that once the dramatic events of the things that were happening in the streets were over, a lot of the journalists and photographers that had come down there didn't return to tell tell much larger narratives in terms of the things that sort of led up not only to those specific events, but what had been happening in the community for a long time. And Mm -hmm. one of the great things that I'm seeing now, especially amongst photographers of color, is that there is a real commitment and passion to tell those stories and get them out there. And that they feel significantly empowered not just about the ability to create the photographs, but to be able to create dialogues about it, not just among themselves as Black photographers, but also the greater community. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you feel has been happening and is happening? Well, in terms of feeling empowered to document ourselves, you know, in America, and uh, in terms of feeling empowered to documenting the the current and breaking news um, as it relates to, you know, our experience in this country, I do see that. I And I love seeing that. And I, I like that we have access now to be able to do those, to do that and, and, and share those narratives and share the greater narratives as you would, um, you know, quite elegantly put it. You know, I, I do see that. Um, what I'm inter- more interested in seeing, what, well, okay, so what I'm interested in seeing more of is having the the structure, the journalistic structure, the editors, the like the eco- ecosystem of where we work support that, you know, because yes, we are out there making photographs, we are investigating, we are telling the broader story, the broader narratives. Are the editors then? picking up those stories and sharing it in the news outlets, because I think that's important. Um, Are the curators now curating exhibitions with so much of the work um, in the past that has basically done the same thing? And um, are they engaging the photographers who are documenting what's happening now as well? So I think, you know, there needs to be a balance too with all of the work that's been created, the photographs that are being made, they need to be supported and placed in a platform and shared and disseminated. So that that's what I'd like to see more of. Oh yeah, that's a great point. Because I know that for black journalists, 
during the 60s, the 70s, and especially during the, the events in the early 90s. That was one of the frustrations that they had, was having to contend with a narrative that a largely white editorship was invested in and who are not open to an alternative way of seeing it and telling the stories. And that's a problem. Is, you know, you can have a lot of photographers of color out there, but if the ed editorial staff and the editing staff of the magazine isn't in line with being open to that, then that's a really big wall to, to have to surmount. Do you find in your experience that there is an, an openness to those kinds of points of view? I feel like it's getting better. I've had a lot of my stories turned down and I have, I've had some picked up, sure, which I'm happy about because I'm always looking to um, present a, a, another point of view. I'm looking to present a, a greater, broader narrative and maybe some stories that may have um, gone under the radar. You know, I'm always looking to do that. So when an editor picks that up, I'm like, yes, you get it. You understand that you understand a progression that needs to be had with journalism, storytelling, breaking news, and all of the stories that are surrounding that. But when my stories are turned down, you know, it's, it's disappointing. It's disappointing because, of course, you, you feel very passionate about mm -hmm. this thing that you have encountered. And now you want to go work on it and report on it and then, you know, have work with a, a brilliant editor to, to have you shape it up and then present it to the world and then have the readers engage with it. You want you want all of that to happen because that moves society forward. It expands perspectives. You want that to happen when it doesn't happen. Of course, naturally, you are disappointed. However, when my stories are turned down, I still go forward with them. You know, I don't let one know or rejection or we, you know, we don't see the point or whatever stop me because, you know, at heart, at my core, I'm a storyteller, I'm a documentary photographer and a journalist. So, you know, I go forward with it. I still pursue the, pursue the story. It then becomes a personal project, which I feel, you know, that personal projects really get to the heart of the story because you are then pursuing something um, on your own terms, you know, on your own time. You're getting to the heart of it. I think that then this is the reason why I really love personal projects because of yeah. yeah, and I think it's that's why I'm a, I'm a big proponent of it, and I think it's so important because it relieves you of that sort of mindset that you have to get permission in order to do something. Exactly, and I think that it's very important as a photographer, or any sort of creative, to go even if someone else doesn't want to pay me for it or believe in it or support it, I'm going to do it anyway because I need to do it. I have right, to do right. It. Right. You know? And I, I and the, did the work. Sorry. <laughs> the word oh, permission word I was the word permission is the word I was looking for. You know, this is a this is a thing that holds us back. Permission. Green light. You know, does this does this editor or curator see our vision or not? But first, we have to see the vision. First, we have to understand that it doesn't just lie. The decision and the validation doesn't just lie in one's person ability to see it or inability to see it. I was listening to someone on uh, uh, Clubhouse, Clubhouse, and uh, okay. someone, was, someone was saying something along the lines of, until you believe completely in what you are doing wholeheartedly with every part of your being, you're going to have a hard time convincing someone else of the mm -hmm. importance of it. Mm -hmm. 
you can't think yourself into that kind of state of mind. You got to go out there and actually like, you know, put in the blood and sweat to make it happen. Yeah. Because that just demonstrates your own investment into into your work and into yourself. Yeah. Which is, I think. I feel, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. On the other side of that, I remember when I was younger and having some ideas, but having, a, you know, perhaps a person further along in their career point something out to me and say, look at this. This is, this is interesting. This is brilliant. I think that you should uh, pursue this. And that also um, inspired me and had a light bulb go, go off in my head to say, yeah, this is, this, this is. So it's important. I guess that speaks to mentorship and community and having, the, you know, good people around you that are able to do that too. Because I, you know, I've, I've believed in some of many, most of my projects wholeheartedly, but then there were some projects where there was that, that person that I looked up to, or that person that had the wisdom and the generosity to say, okay, wow, you have something good on your hands. You know, you may have to follow that. And I did. Yeah. And I, I, I've always been glad that I've done that. The idea of having that mentorship and having that sort of feedback coming from someone you admire is so important, mm -hmm. especially coming from people who have similar experiences, not just as creatives, but as a person of color, I have found to be invaluable. Not to say that there are people who, who are other ethnicities or any cultures do not have something valuable to offer, but I have found that it's one of the, one of the good things about it is not having to do the explaining, not having to do the justification for it, which is always like a big hurdle when you have to sort of precede your discussion of the work by getting someone on, on the same page. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But talk to me about, uh, on the same topic of mentorship, about a moment early on in your career in which you got that kind of feedback and that it really helped you to gain a greater sense of confidence about what you were doing. Because early on, you know, we can be doing all these things. You know, we may not feel we know exactly what the hell we're doing, right? We know we like doing it. And we think it's working, but tell me about an uh, early project or some feedback that you got from a mentor early on that helped to sort of really instill that sense of, oh, I'm, I'm going in the right direction. Yeah. One moment that comes to mind is about when I was in my 20s, I had done a, quite a bit of documenting you know, daily life in Senegal, West Africa. I came back to New York City and I had this body of work that, uh, you know, I would share with people from time to time to time. This was before Instagram. So I, I had a physical book of photographs <laughs> that I would bring along with me wherever, you know, out and about art galleries, different gatherings where I knew artists would be or my friends would be, and I would share them. Dr. Deborah Willis, I remember one time she was putting together a book um, and the book was called Black, A Celebration of a Culture. And it was an anthology of uh, celebrating Blackness through uh, visual, visual, you know, through photographs, you know, celebrating, uh, having a visual celebration of, of Black culture around the world. And so I showed her my portfolio that I had put together myself. I had printed the work myself. And so, you know, in your 20s, I was just starting out. So these images weren't the way my images would look now are <laughs> the way I would have a portfolio look, look now. But she sat down, she looked through it and gave me feedback and um, used some of the work in her book. 
And that was the first time I was published in a book. I think I was about 24 years old. Wow. The book was published jointly by the Smithsonian and Hylas Publishing. And I had my work in a book with, you name it, you know, Gordon Parks, Bruce Davidson, Carrie Mae Ween, some of my contemporaries, Delphine Fawundu, um, Jules Allen, uh, Terrence Jennings, and I'm, I'm naming a lot of men, but... Um, you know, so many people. Ife Tayo. I, I mean, there's so many photographers in that book. It's, it's a huge book. It's, oh, it's, it's pretty. It's on my shelf. It's on your shelf. So, you know, oh, yeah. you know about this book. <laughs> and if, if someone, if, you know, if the listeners don't have it, I suggest you all pick it up. It's a, it's a beautiful book. My work was in that tome, contributing to, to the story of uh, Black visual culture, Black pride, black history, black beauty, black cultural expression. And I had to work in there. And that was extremely, extremely, um, what's the word? I was, (laughs) I was happy, but I was very much empowered. And I felt like I can do this, you know, I can have my work be part of these types of conversations with people who have established themselves and who are who have basically gone to expert uh, status in, in in storytelling. You know, I can be part of this, and so that was that was one of the moments where I felt um, empowered, and I felt you know someone like Dr. Deborah Willis looking at my work and seeing the value in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. For me, it felt like. Oh, I'm part of the dialogue. It yeah. wasn't so much about my ranking. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I'm not as good as Gordon Parks or Roy DeCarava or Kerry Mae Weems, but I'm 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 in the orbit, you know. I'm being yeah. included, and that was incredibly, incredibly satisfying. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Brooklyn. I did. One of the interesting things about your work and for your story is the fact that that you had grew up with an early awareness of, of the diversity of blackness. Because I think when I most people think about African-Americans, they, there's, it seems like a sort of a, a very narrow story. But there's the kind of blackness that it, that's experienced in this country, and especially in a city like New York, with its wealth of immigrants from, from Africa, from South America, Central America that you got to be aware that there is, there's a great diversity to that story of what it means to be black and that that has informed so much about what you do. And I would love to hear about those years growing up in Brooklyn and how that experience has really shaped who you are as a person and as, as a photographer. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately you know, for the past year, I haven't been able to travel internationally, which is a thing that I've done most of my adulthood. <laughs> you know, I've, I've gone abroad. Growing up where I grew up in particular, my family was probably the one of the only few Black American, African American families on my block. Everyone else was from Jamaica, Panama, Trinidad, Nigeria, Guyana, all of the Caribbean islands, um, a few people from Guinea, Ghana, and you know Senegalese people not too far away. This is how I interacted with, with my community. I always felt that I was part of a global black diaspora community, j- just naturally because that's <laughs> that's what I saw. You know, 
that's what I saw. And um, my grandmother, her best friend was from Trinidad and they would sit on a porch together and talk and exchange recipes. And, you know, my grandmother was a Southern woman, but she would make many <laughs> recipes that many dishes from the Caribbean. And, you know, that's because, you know, this is where we, where we were situated the music you know i remember one time uh the song reasons by earth wind and fire i heard i believe i heard the the reggae version first and i thought that was the original mm. version and so when i heard the earth wind and fire version i was like wow what are these guys doing like what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know so that that's what it was you know i grew up around a lot of reggae a lot of calypso a lot lots of soca and I love that. I, I really appreciate it. I didn't um, kind of think about these things until I grew up. And I was just like, wow, that was that was a really interesting experience to to experience uh, the black diaspora basically on my block and in my neighborhood. And, you know, um, being Muslim, too, in the mosque, you know, you I've interacted with many people from West Africa because that's just that's just what the community was like. And so naturally, when I grew up and I was able to travel, the first place, you know, as, as a Pan-African kid, as this, you know, young woman who, you know, thought of herself as part of this global black diaspora, I went to the African continent. You know, I went to Senegal. And then from there, I, I went to as many countries on the African continent as I could in Morocco, Egypt, South Africa, Nigeria, Ethiopia. I mean, I just kept on going back. You know, I engaged in the Black diaspora in Europe, always in France, Paris, London, you know, just looking, looking, yeah. looking everywhere, visiting the Caribbean, you know, wanted being becoming curious then about what was it like to be Black in the Middle East. So then look, looking toward Oman, visiting Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai. But since being on lockdown for the year, I couldn't do any of those things. So I traveled around this country quite a bit um, in 2000 and up to now and realizing that there is a, a amazing diversity of blackness in the United States regionally, you know, a Southern black culture, a Midwestern black culture, a West Coast black culture, you know. Um, so I, I'm really fascinated by that. I'm interested in that. And even when the world opens back up, I, I want to go to Tulsa. I want to go back to Minneapolis. I want to go to go back to Detroit. I want to go back to Miami um, spend some time in Houston and New Orleans. You know, I've, I've been to these places, but now I'm looking at them with a different eye. You know, I almost feel like I missed out a little bit. So um, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm doing now. I guess I'm, I'm kind of completing a seeking to complete my understanding of, of blackness, you know, and looking home. What are you saying that you missed out on exactly? Uh, you know, when I growing up in New York, you know, it was about, you know, the Caribbean community, the African community, you know, the, the immigrant community that I lived among. But I, I didn't engage so much with my Southern roots when I grew mm. up. You know, okay. I, went, I went to the African continent. But now I'm, I'm very interested in going back to um, South Carolina, which I have been to South Carolina. But I, I guess being down there, I was just with my family, you know, kicking it with my cousins and, and, and these types of things. But now I'd like to really engage and see 
um, and learn more about about the culture from which I'm from, Southern. And then also, um, you know, going to places like Detroit, like I mentioned, you know, these are these are these are ultra black places. These are like, you know, and uh, New Orleans. I, I've been to New Orleans many times, but I, I now want to go and kind of sit there. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, that that you don't want to just visit the place. You want to be there. I want to be there and like yeah. you know check out check out the black scene, so to speak. Yeah, I think you have a wonderful advantage in that. So early in life, you got to visit the continent and experience these black cultures at a, at a time that really was very impressionable, and seeing not only how different it was, but how similar it was. And yeah. I can't help but think that you probably have gained a really valuable insight so that when you do go back to South Carolina and you go, do go back to Detroit and you go back to New Orleans, that you'll have a keener eye than someone who had never left. Mm. Do you think so? I, well, I feel like that that's such a wonderful compliment. I, I, I think so. I hope so. I, I accept that and embrace that. For sure, absolutely. Because in nineteen seventy six, I think I was in middle middle school, and I took our family took a trip to Dominican Republic for the first time because my parents had both immigrated there from the fifties, and we did this this big trip where we visited my mom's hometown, my dad's hometown, and went to Santo Domingo, and it was the first time I had been outside of a country, the country, and I got to see the extreme range at first we stayed in santo domingo at this luxurious hotel to the point and then later on we were in my dad's campo his small village you know where electricity and water was being rationed and you know you got to see the whole range in terms of wealth and poverty and when i came back i couldn't see my world in the same way and i was only there for probably two weeks yeah but it was such a valuable experience to have that I remember at some part in the trip, we went back to the hotel. I think it was like a week or two. It was towards the tail end and I, and I couldn't stand it. <laughs> there was just <laughs> something about, you know, I didn't care about the fact that it had swimming pools and 24 hour water and power. There was something genuine that I'd experienced when I went down to the small towns and I had the opportunity to engage with people one-to-one, not just with, you know, the staff, that I loved and yeah. it was just so valuable to me. So that's, that, so I, I get, that's why I say what I say about what you've had the opportunity to do in, in, in Senegal and es- elsewhere that yeah. my gut just tells me that that's going to inform so much of what you've done and, and probably are going to be doing into the future. I agree. I agree. <laughs> tell me about, you know, exactly when photography started becoming, a, you know, your voice. It's interesting. I I always talk about my mother and how she basically created our family archive, the way she made the photographs of our relatives, very skillfully and intentionally making actual portraits of um, my relatives. And many of them have passed away. And she also, you know, unfortunately has passed away. So uh, there was something in that that I saw uh, there was something powerful that I saw and the way she moved, I paid attention to that. There was some urgency to make those photographs. 
And so I paid attention to that, but then I, I kind of put it in my back pocket because I was just like, you know, I'm okay. There's my mother again with the uh, Kodak Instamatic and, you know, with the camera that she always had film in. You know, when you're younger, it's just kind of like these are just the daily things that happen when you have company over. But when I uh, got a little bit older and, you know, I had a, my sister came, I have a younger sister and my sister wasn't able to meet many of those folks in the photographs because they had passed away. But, you know, the photographs were there, the portraits were there um, and the stories were there alongside. And I was able to share some of those stories. So was my mother and my grandmother about our relatives. And those photographs really informed a a very strong identity on um, who I was and who she was and who we were pictures of our our grandparents and our parents and all of our cousins um, who didn't live necessarily live around us, but we knew who we were and we knew that we came from a huge family and and a long, strong lineage, you know, particularly from South Carolina, the low country and the um, Pauly's Island, which was one of the Gullah Gucci islands on the coast. I think that was the start of it. Um, I had another, you know, there there are other moments that I noticed where I felt very drawn to photographs, you know, looking when I was younger, I would look at Jack Mitchell's book on the Alvinelli Dance Company. And uh, this came out in the 90s, but he had photographs all the way from the beginning. So he was able to tell the story from the very beginning of, of Alvinelli's dance, dance company when it was, you know, a very small idea to a huge international dance company. And I, I looked at that, photo, that book from over and over again and saw the story and saw the growth of the different dancers and the characters and, and Ali and, and the documentation of his um, intellectual and cultural work. You know, that was very powerful to me. Another thing was, um, of course, looking at the Black magazine that we had in our homes, you know, Essence, Ebony, you know, and even even some of the enter- other entertainment magazines like Right On. But and then in the oh, 90s, man, you're taking me back. <laughs> yeah. And then, and, you know, in the 90s came magazines like Vibe and The Source. And these and these um images were always really, you know, smartly done to to complement they're very smartly written pieces. So I, I started to put those things together and actually I wanted to write first and that's what I did. You know, I was I was pursuing a career in writing. I would I would read writers like Karen Good, Michael Gonzalez, Torre, and you know, they would speak about a culture that was currently living at a time with such grace and such, you know, intelligence. And I and I really loved it. And I was like, wow, you know, that's that's a really interesting way to see um, hip hop culture and, and urban culture at the moment. So that's what I wanted to do. But then I was very much taken aback by the portraits that were made by, you know, of of the the stars at the time, you know? So, you know, it's all of those things. I always talk about my first assignment, which was the Million Women March. You know, of course, this is in 1997, no social media. So I I went down there, I made photographs. And for my friends and family who weren't able to go, I was the person who came back with the photographs. And I came back with the story and I relayed the story. And it was almost like... um, I felt very powerful, not almost, <laughs> I felt very powerful and I, and I saw the, the, um, the responsibility in, in relating a story and in, in, in documenting a story and relating a story, you know, visually. 
I think I would say that. And of course, you know, going to um, being in West Africa, being in Senegal, making photographs, engaging with people and asking many questions so that even when I came back with my photographs from Senegal, I had a lot of information uh, to accompany the pictures that I made. I could talk about them for days and days, the context, you know, the time, the people, the why I took the photograph and the where. I think that I I mentioned a lot of things. Did I answer your question? Oh, yeah. You gave me. I love that. I, I love when people just get get deep into it. I just mm-hmm. and I just have to lay back. You make my job easy. <laughs> uh, you, you you know you did a book, Women Photographers of the African Diaspora. Yeah, um, which I fortunately didn't get a copy of. I'm I'm still on the hunt for one, but okay. um, it, it brought to mind this this idea of the importance of not just gathering a, a tome like that that is that showcases the work of such talented women from all parts of the, the the world. But the idea of the importance of a young girl seeing the content of that book and seeing herself in it and seeing that, that a career like that is possible. And who was that for you early on? Did you Did you learn or did you actually get to meet someone who you felt you saw yourself in in terms of a photographic career? Wow. Living in New York um, was very good to my younger self because, uh, you know, this is the media capital. We have um, all of the magazines were here. You know, you had the institutions like NYU and, and Dr. Deborah Willis. You had a lot of photographers living in New York City and they were accessible. They would be at openings Uh, panel discussions, conferences, and you can go up to them and and engage. You know, I think that was a a great thing for me. And I'm always thankful for that. I had an incredible photographic community here. I, when, you know, when I was younger, I met photographers like Lori Lyons, who, you know, is an unsung hero, you know, heroine of of mine. She made many editorial work for Essence Magazine she was a writer too. She did an essay for in one of Jamel Shabazz's books, you know, and, and an incredible photographer and storyteller. Um, technically, all she knew all of the, you know, lighting, studio work, etc. And she was someone who I met very early on. And I saw that, wow, you can be a black woman, a brown skinned girl with braids and be a master photographer. I would say the same thing uh, for Dr. Deborah Willis, a scholar in black photographers, you know, who holds that history, who felt compelled and felt it necessary and, and saw the importance to dig into our history in photography because we've been engaging with the medium since day one. And Dr. Deb was was someone who was accessible to me, always around, generous, even to this day, to offer advice. Um, to support in any kind of way. And she was also somebody who I um, was very much inspired by. And I saw myself in her like, oh, wow, you know, I can be a scholar in photography. I can talk about photographs and, and 
in this very deep and expansive and intellectual way. Um, I would also have to say, you know, my best friend, Delphine Fawundu, she has been making photographs, you know, since the 1990s, you know, documenting hip hop, hip hop culture in the 1990s. And we became friends um, in the early 2000s. Um, she's a master printer, knows her way through the dark room like it's nothing. And I saw myself in her, you know, we lived close by, became friends. We, you know, did this photography thing together, explored a lot of things together um, through our friendship and ultimately made this book, you know, that we were trying to make for 10 years, even before it came out. Um, and I would have to say that this book, um, I, you know, I, I must say that this book was, of course, inspired by Viewfinders, um, which is a black woman, Viewfinders, which is a book by Jeannie Mutusumi Ash. Um, and Viewfinders came out in 1986. It's a book about black women photographers. So, um, yeah, you know, I, you know, I feel like that I can go on, but I, I think, you know, those three are, are, are good mentions that propelled my, my photography interest and curiosity in my 20s. When I held the monograph, Echoes Shades by Pierre Torzebeski, I knew I was in for something special. Distributed through the Charcoal Book Club, this book immediately establishes itself as unique just by its cover design. The rough material that's used for its cover and the recessed lettering provides a tactile experience that's unlike most of the books that are out there. When I turned the pages, I was greeted with striking black and white imagery that documents ceremonies and daily rituals that examine the connection between nature and culture. The results are really one of a kind. If you're satisfied, with looking at the same kinds of photographs over and over again on Instagram, that's great. But if you want to discover how amazing photography can be, sign up for the Charcoal Book Club today. These special first edition books showcase the best in contemporary photography. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. But if you're like me, you're not going to do that. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Visit their website to see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember to use the code THECANDRIDFRAME at checkout to receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And it must have been an amazing experience compiling the book when you got to sort of see the wealth of photographic history that yeah. was out there and, and to have it consolidated like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering what it was like for you to sort of have that greater awareness of probably of people you might not have heard of who were doing, who was doing work that, you know, that may have been very different from you or that you hadn't heard of. And what that did in terms of your appreciation and your understanding of the contributions of, you know, of black women photographers. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about travel is that we knew, I knew that there were black women photographers, African photographers, African diasporic photographers who were women doing this work. Like we knew that 
you know, we, we know that we are out there, <laughs> yeah. you know, just because the, the magazines and the, the museums aren't supporting us and showing our work and hiring us, that doesn't mean we're out there. And I think that was a huge myth that there are no black women photographers. There are no African women photographers. And they, there were because I encountered them. Delphine, who's my co-author, we, we encountered them. And we, we knew that we were part of a brilliant cohort of, of women photographers that were making work um, in the 2000s, which is when we first started the book, 2004. Um, and we, we couldn't get anyone to publish that book. We had some brilliant black women photographers in that book. Couldn't get anyone to publish it. So we shelved it. And then we picked it back up in uh, 2016, 2016. And so we were like, you know, we're not going to go around and, and get that permission. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. going to do it ourselves because everyone was self-publishing at the time. It, it had become a thing. Yeah, you can self-publish and it's still legit. Let's do it. And by then we were like, we, we know people internationally that are, are creating brilliant works who are, who are making these brilliant visual narratives. Let's reach out to them and make the book. And we did, and it was incredible to, to, you know, have the support. So many photographers supported us and were excited about the book. We, we put it together in 10 months and um, it came out in the world and, and was able to share it with so many people and institutions and it sold out immediately. And we look forward to reprinting it. You know, this year is our fifth year. Oh, good. In the- the book yeah we look forward to reprinting that and um, hopefully adding some new folks and some new voices some new essays to the book to contextualize and, and talk about our work so yeah i look forward to that as well i'm saving space on my shelf for it i won't miss <laughs> it i won't miss it the second time what are the challenges about being photographers it's always been a challenge but in terms of just the hustle the business side of it and uh, the business yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's let's <laughs> talk. Let's talk about that because you know I think that I know that learning how to take a good picture is the easier part. It's the other part. You know that's that's a challenge. So what's been invaluable to you in terms of being able to negotiate that part of it so that it is what you do for a living? Yeah, I think you know that is a a huge part that can be very tricky. You know, money contracts, pricing, you know, all of these things, you know, if you don't have access to it, um, to this information, you, I mean, you probably won't even get, get a job where you need to, you know, uh, bid for, bid for it. You know what I mean? So, you know, that has been a, that's been an aspect of it. I feel like black photographers have been locked out for a while. Last year was a huge year for us. We were being hired at, at a, at a, <laughs> we were we started to get hired basically, yeah. um, and then we started to encounter these contracts and these terms, you know, that we needed to. Many of us, including myself, needed to to seek counsel for or to seek advice for, you know, because the the, the dollar figures were were getting longer and the terms were getting longer and the deliverables deliverables were you know were looking a bit more. Uh, complex you know mm-hmm. and so um i think that needless to say that has if you are if you've been making work on one level which is which is fine you know and haven't had access to that other level where you had to have that business savvy that has um that 
that's been tricky. It's been tricky for myself and for a lot of photographers that, that I've been speaking to for the past year. You know, fortunately, there are there have been photographers who have taken it upon themselves to create um, support systems like Diversify Photo and, and organizations like that where you can go to and seek advice on how to price your work or have someone look over your contract because sometimes, especially when you're making photographs with for a, you know a larger paper or a, a larger company, television company, or, or you know things like that. So sometimes, if you're not careful, you can give away the rights, your copyright to your photograph, and you know that has happened, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, but there, unfortunately, there there are organizations out there. Um, actually created by us for us so, um, so that we can create our work. We can still be creative and still um, make money and be smart about it. Yeah, because we, we've been through this many times before. Yes, know, whether it was, <laughs> yeah, but as but also in terms of um, the events that happened in Watson and in L.A. back in 92. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like, oh, we need, we need people who look like them to go down and shoot. Right, because our normal staff is too scared to go down there. Right, right? and so it would create an, an opportunity, and there would be an upswell of jobs for for photographers. But making that sustainable over the subsequent years is, has always been sort of a challenge. Yes, it opened doors for some, but not enough. Right, you know? right, and, and yeah, I think yeah. that Diversify Photo and other organizations like that, I think, are really invaluable in terms of getting people savvy about. Not just that one assignment or that one licensing of yeah. uh, one particular picture to go, you know, yeah. you're getting your foot in the door, but it can get slammed back on you real quick if you're not careful. I, very, very true. Very, very true. One of the one of the more lighter things that I've engaged with um, recently was um, the Life Reflected campaign with Adobe. So mm -hmm. you know, big companies are 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 creating these really. Um, dynamic and, and fun campaigns that are engaging photographers. So that's something I did for the past three weeks. And I was able to um, create these prompts and share these prompts and have people um, share their work through the, through the prompts. For example, growth reflected, you know, if you have pictures that are exploring growth, share them with the hashtag and then love reflected, reflect, friendship reflected. So I think um, kind of pulling photographers in that way and uh, expanding the community that way was, was really fun to me and is important too. And I think that um, creating community also creates knowledge and, and gives people the opportunity to engage and, and ask questions and learn and grow. But tell me about, you know, the relationship with Adobe in terms of the, you know, cause you get, you get access to a, a huge audience as a result of that. And you get an opportunity to connect to people who really share a similar passion in terms of being creative. Yeah. Tell me about the, the collaboration with that. And what's that been like for you to not only, you know, receive the benefits of having a relationship with Adobe, but having the opportunity to connect with so many people? Let me see. Where do I start? I mean, it, it's been a great um, ride so far. I'm really excited to see the photo album that, comes of the Life Reflected campaign, you know, people who have submitted work through the, the hashtags um, and then, you know, throughout those different themes, you know, it should really excited to see that. But um, 
What's your question again? It's it's. I feel well, like my no, my mind kind well, of went. Let me let me go back to it. Why don't you explain in a little more detail what the life reflective project is, yeah. so people who, who may not be familiar where they can get an understanding. Okay, no problem. So it's basically a campaign to um, create a global international photo album um, that looks at daily life. You know, that looks at the human experience and how we have. Um, documented that through photographs and not necessarily work through, you know, studio work or professional work, but what have we recorded in our daily lives on our phones, on our, on our, you know, cameras put in our archives, you know, that sometimes we may forget about, but there's a time, I feel like now uh, is the time to really look at how we are connected as human beings. You know, we all are experienced love, experiencing love, friendship, growth, joy, um, adventure, you know, all of these things. So that's what um, basically the campaign is about, is to create this photo album based on all of these things, all of these things that we have experienced in life. And it's, it's been really wonderful. Um, another photographer uh, who's a friend of mine, Andre Wagner, he's also on the campaign yeah. and has been sharing the hashtags with everyone. And so, um, you know, it, it's really been fun and I'm, I'm grateful for it too, because as we know, the last three weeks have been um, pretty serious and heavy with the trial and everything like that. And then, you know, things are, are still not over, but it was a really good opportunity to um, connect with folks, you know, and to, and to, to share and to, to really center the human experience, you know, that we often forget. We are all having a human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And tell me about the experience about collaborating with with Adobe because it's it's you know it's a large it's a large business and you know it's a big name especially in the photographic community, and but it's also a rare kind of opportunity in which you have to sort of dialogue you know in which you're not just getting hired to do something you are a collaborator in this thing you know your ideas yeah. and your thoughts and your feelings about these things are being they're being honored which is not something that we often get with a with a big company. And I'd love for you to sort of talk about what that experience has been like for you and Andre. Okay. Well, this is really my first kind of influencer experience <laughs> because you, as you know, I'm mostly a um, documentary and photojournalist. Um, so it was, it, it was a nice um, kind of uh, expansion on what I do. The experience with Adobe has been um, very positive, um, very exciting. Um, I was really excited when they reached out to me with this project. Um, they answered a lot, all of my questions. The team that I work with were open to um, some of my thoughts and suggestions and, and my timeline, and you know, really respected my timeline because I, I was working on on you know what I was working on. And so um, it was really great. And I, I, I hope that, and I hope and I, I wish that, um, you know, all of the experiences are with, you know, big companies like Adobe are as positive as the one that I have experienced with them, you know. And I think that this project that really centers life and life experiences, I really think that this project is, it just makes people feel included you know, everyone can participate 
it isn't something that you need to have some type of technical knowledge about or you need to be like a, a master pro at Photoshop. You're basically participating and engaging with, you know, the work that you've already created, you know, and you can be in dialogue and conversation with other photographers through these hashtags, you know, um, some of the hashtags were inspiration reflected, childhood reflected, home reflected, joy reflected, friendship reflected. These are all things that that we engage in. This is these are life experiences, and so um, I think it was pretty smart for Adobe to kind of just engage the everyday, regular um, experience of, of living life. That's great. I look forward to seeing all the final results with this. Yeah, yeah, me too. I look forward to it. It should be coming soon. So my last question is a question I ask each guest. I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? That What a tough question. Okay, just, just give me one second. It's okay. A lot of people have taken that second. You know, I was, I guess I was thinking about her earlier because I, I really want to photograph her. I'm doing a book on black photographers mm-hmm. and I was thinking about her earlier and her name is Liz Johnson Otter. She's based in the UK. She's Ghanaian and Russian. Mm. Yeah. She's been in this game for a while since the eighties. Uh, I consider her an unsung hero, but she's probably sung, you know, <laughs> But I was thinking about her because she did some photographs recently for, um, she photographed someone for a magazine. I'm so sorry, I forget. But I was I was like, man, if I could make my way over to the UK, I would really like to sit with her and, and photograph her. She had a big show at the Brooklyn Museum a few years back and, and we did sit and talk, um, which, I, which was wonderful and great. And I saw her again in Mali in 2019 at the Bamako Biennale which I am, um, me and Delphine curated a small show for, and she was there. Mm-hmm. She had her work, she had her work exhibited there as well. So we, we kicked it for a little bit, but I, I would, I, I would think, I think that uh, folks should check out Liz Johnson Arthur. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That sounds like, that sounds like a plan. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and your generosity. I, I, I loved having the chance to talk to you. This was great. Thank you for having me. I I appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're pleased to announce LensRentals.com as a sponsor of the show. They are a great fit because they understand and support the work that we do. And they provide a service that's valuable to listeners like you. Because there are times when you want or you need to use a particular piece of equipment for an assignment or a project or a once in a lifetime vacation, but your pockets only go so deep and so you do without. But with LensRentals.com, you are provided an affordable option for using that special lens or camera for a weekend, a week or longer at a reasonable and a fair price. It's also a great way to use something before you commit to buying it. And if you're like me and you worry about something bad happening while using someone else's gear, they offer two different levels of insurance so that your rental is protected against damage, theft, and even a bear attack. So use it worry-free. 
Check out their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at lensrentals.com newsletter. And thanks to those who financially support The Candor Frame. Your belief in what we do means the world to us and has helped us grow in so many ways. I can't thank you enough. If you haven't already, please contribute to our work by becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash thecandorframe. Just $5 a month makes a big difference. Thank you for your kindness and support. Thanks to Layla for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting laylabarain.format.com. Your thoughts and feelings about the show matter. So if you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Kenneth Durecki and Blue Tangle Projects for their recent contributions. I'm also going to be leading my Using Your Life to Launch Your Photography online workshop this summer. Find out more by clicking on the link on the website, in the show notes, or visit nobechicreative.com. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for free on both Apple iOS and Android. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.